you to take them and turn with me to the book of First Corinthians, which we have been studying here for a good many months now, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And this morning we begin a look at chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just set the context for you. In chapter 11, the Apostle Paul turned his attention from the way the Corinthian believers were to engage the external world and to turn their attention to how they're to engage God in public worship and how they're to present themselves, how they're to carry on with one another. And what we saw in the beginning of chapter 11, the first half of chapter 11, was basically that God would have us come not as neutered beings, not as just merely Christian beings, but as Christian men and as Christian women and to present ourselves accordingly, accepting our creation as such and thus celebrating and reflecting his glory in a unique way. In the second half of chapter 11, we saw that while God recognizes the distinction of male and female, he does not recognize the distinction of rich and poor. And we saw in the celebration of the Lord's Supper that the Corinthians, in in an abomination of the supper, the rich were hoarding and feasting while the poor were left out and left to go hungry. And the apostle had very harsh words, and more than that, remember the text, God himself judged them with a certain severe chastisement. Some, some were sick and some were dead, having observed the Lord's Supper improperly. And if anything, that should tell us God does care how we worship. <clears throat> well, this morning we turn now to 1 Corinthians 12, where the apostle is going to begin really a three-chapter series on the whole subject of spiritual gifts. Some of you will say, well, wait a minute, chapter 13 is about love. Yes, it is. But Paul has the occasion for Paul to write about love is in this discussion of spiritual gifts and how we're to, through the exercise of our spiritual gifts, love and serve and edify one another. And so ultimately what Paul has on his mind, though the principles apply much more broadly, is our public worship. And so as we turn to this subject that has been hotly debated over these many decades, uh, let us seek the Lord's guidance. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we turn now to your word, we ask you to lead us to Jesus. Father, we don't want to hear or even consider the mere musings of men but rather we long to know you, to be drawn nigh to you, that we might be all the more like you in all of your glory, in all of your excellence. So gracious Lord, won't you speak to us through your word and give our feet the capacity and the inclination to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We read now the text from 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. 
There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Earlier this week, Rocky Anthony brought to me a <clears throat> copy of, a, of a, um, one of those fun articles from the Commercial Appeal. It was about a man who has been living homeless in Long Beach, California for a good 20 years. But he was found by his sister. His sister put out a missing person report, and the reason she did so was that their parents had died, and this gentleman who had been living on the street and in alleys was now the heir to $110,000 in Sulphur Springs, Ohio. $110,000 he knew nothing about. And so, as it turned out, a bicycle police officer who had cited this fellow some 75 times for various infractions knew exactly where to find the man and to tell him he was an heir to a sizable chunk of money and he best be getting home. And sure enough, he found himself now staying in the family home. Here was a fellow who owned a handsome sum of money but was living entirely ignorant of it. And so it is that we too, as Christians, though we are heirs to the bounty of God, that we are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ of all that is his, all too often we live as paupers. And the Apostle Paul says, you have an inheritance, dear friends, that I would not have you ignorant of. And so it is, Paul the Apostle goes and seeks out, as it were, the homeless Christians to tell them of all that is theirs. And in fact, if you read in Ephesians chapter 4, where the apostle speaks of gifts there, he speaks of the spiritual gifts as the spoils of Christ. Christ having ascended to the right hand of God the Father as the great conquering king, having vanquished his foes, this same Jesus now shares the spoils of his victory with all of us. And the spiritual gifts, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and his moving through us in a variety of ways is the manifestation and the evidence that Jesus has vanquished his foes, he has ushered in a new age, and he rules. And so it is. We speak today of our inheritance, our inheritance of a great, great gift, a great bounty. But you know, dear friends, I think if many of us are, as Presbyterians are honest, given all of the controversy and the hullabaloo that has followed the discussion of spiritual gifts in recent decades. There are a good many of us, I suspect, in this building who would prefer that we just not talk about them. That instead we go ahead and sing our songs, pray our prayers, read our responsive readings, go ahead and give our offerings, hear the sermon, shake the minister's hand, and best be gone without talking about spiritual gifts. Because few of us really want to step into what seem to be muddy and murky waters and want to get into a, a splash fight. And yet the Apostle Paul regards spiritual gifts as very important to the church. One evidence of that is he writes of it in three of his epistles. He writes of it in Romans chapter 12. 
He writes of it here at great length in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he writes of it in Ephesians chapter 4. And in fact, if you take Ephesians, as many scholars do, to be a circular letter that was not only written to the church at Ephesus, but a whole variety of churches, Ephesus copy being the one that is extant to us, then Paul the Apostle has been writing to gifts everywhere he goes. And he wants the church to know about these gifts. And that means it behooves us, dear brothers and sisters, to study them ourselves and to better, our queen ourse better acquaint ourselves with what God, through Paul, has to say to us about it. So we consider this morning these first six verses, which is really Paul's opening salvo. It's his introduction. It's the foundation upon which he's going to build his case regarding spiritual gifts. And I believe in these six verses the apostle gives us two points, and it's the two points that I wish to focus on this morning. The first of these is this. Paul wants us to know we need these gifts. They aren't optional. They aren't uh, a nice little ditty as part of a Christian peripheral existence. Paul wants us to know we need these gifts. And then marvelously in the second half of this passage, he tells us, and God himself has bountifully provided them for us. And so I want us to consider in that order these two points from the apostle. The first, arising out of verses 1 to 3, we need these gifts. Now we read verse 1 and it's fairly evident to us. The apostle says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. And so Paul is telling us, it's important for you to know this. But quite honestly, if you're like me, verses 2 and 3 at first blush look almost like a detour. I mean, if the apostle is going to want us to know about spiritual gifts, why doesn't he just get on with it and get into the meat of the matter, as it were, and tell us about the spiritual gifts? Instead, he goes into the Corinthian pagan past. And then he starts speaking in rather uh, interesting language about, well, nobody speaks by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is cursed, and nobody can speak but by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord. So one may wonder, why in the world are these verses here? And I must confess to you that in my 25 years as a Christian, and the countless times I've read chapter 12, I have to confess to you, I have never focused on these verses. I'm very quick to blow right over the top of them and get right into the, to the various gifts that the apostles going to discuss. And quite honestly, I completely forgot they were here until I was studying them this week. And yet I want to suggest to you, as I've studied them, as I've wrestled with them, I believe these verses lay out, these, these two cryptic verses lay out for us the foundation for why this is so important. And it is this, we need to think clearly about the gifts and we need to exercise them. It is crucial for our faith. You see, what the Apostle says here is that spiritual gifts are for every Christian who would increasingly proclaim in his thought, in his words, and his deeds, Jesus is Lord. You see, nobody can confess 
Jesus is Lord. Now, by the way, the apostle here is not saying that you just can't verbally articulate, well, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. We all know anybody can say just about anything linguistically. What he's saying when he says no one can say is what he's saying is no one can confess. Nobody can own the truth, Jesus is Lord, except by means of the Holy Spirit. And, it, and that is the proclamation that is made when the gifts are articulated. It's very interesting to me in verse 2 that he goes back to this verse about the Corinthian pagan background. He says, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. What Paul is saying here is, Christians, humble yourself and realize you are profoundly vulnerable in your faith. It is all too easy for us to sing our strong hymns and hear our big organ and, and rousingly feel that nobody can move us. We're rocks. Rocks of Gibraltar. Yet the truth of the matter is we are profoundly vulnerable in our faith, I think if we're very honest. And the apostle here, interestingly, he mocks idols. He says, you were led astray to mute idols. Clearly alluding to Psalm 115 or Psalm 135 when the psalmist mocks them and says, these idols have eyes but they cannot see, ears but they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell, mouths but they cannot speak, feet but they cannot walk. Yet, ultimately, the real joke isn't on the idol. The real joke's on us, because we're the ones who bow down to them. We make them and then bow down to them. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't bow to <clears throat> little tiki statues and, and little figurines and carvings and so forth. No, you may not. You bow down to good modern Western cultural idols. In our pursuit of money, we love the greenback. In our pursuit of power, in our pursuit of significance, in our pursuit of romance as the highest end, we're going to find one idol after another that we can bow down to. And every one of us in this room is a good, to use the words of John Calvin, idol factory. We can produce them like nothing else. And the fact of the matter is, we're all susceptible. And the apostle is saying, don't you realize, folk, how easily you were duped? Oh, let's look at the language. Somehow or other, you were led astray by them. Somehow or other. It's not even rational. It makes no sense. And yet all of us, says the apostle, have been susceptible. And dear Christians, we are all very, very impressionable. Much more so than we'd like to think. Just consider the number of Christians and Christian churches that have been led astray by charlatans in the church, wolves in sheep's clothing who come in and lead countless numbers astray, bilking them of all that they have saved in the process. Now we Presbyterians go, well, you know, we're a little more strict. Yeah, but we too can be easily moved, can't we? I mean, consider, just honestly consider how many dumb purchases you've made in the last week or a month ones that maybe you wish you hadn't in the past, or, or bad movies that you got allured into seeing. If you'd known that was the movie, you wouldn't have gone, but somebody got you in there. We're easily impressionable, just like everybody else. Maybe more importantly, we're all profoundly 
uh, rocked with not much wind off our faith. We are all easily distressed, like sheep, easily rattled. It doesn't take much to shake us up, does it? Physical affliction. Some of us know serious physical affliction. Some of us know what it is to be terminally ill, to be staring down the barrel of death itself. That's enough to rock anyone's faith. Relational difficulty. A marriage you thought was forever has broken apart. It's enough to rock your faith. A career that's in shambles with no real clear direction of where to go next. Children that seem way beyond your retrieving them. Any of those things and more can rock our faith. It doesn't take much to rock mine. All you need to do is give me a stomach virus and I'm questioning the goodness of God. You know, I can take head problems and nose problems, throat problems. You start messing with my stomach, I'm, I'm ready to sign it away. It's a terrible thing. I remember coming to Memphis that summer uh, evening five years ago to be an intern here and I got stomach flu that very night and found myself as I was just doing my best in a sweat to hold back, hold in my cookies, just saying, Lord, are you really there? You know, all of us can get rocked with little things. And dear friends, that really ought not surprise you. Because we're asked to, to follow, to love a God we've never seen, heard, tasted, smelled, touched. He's completely inaccessible to you by your senses. And yet God calls not just for some of your allegiance. He wants your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even while he remains hidden to you. Actually, when I consider it, I find it remarkable that as many of us as do maintain their faith, despite the circumstances which are very, very accessible to your senses, bearing down upon you, buffeting and battering and pounding you, like a storm up against a seawall, and there it is. You maintain faith in an unseen God. And dear friends, what I want to suggest to you is it's precisely because we are this vulnerable, it is precisely because God himself is hidden, is inaccessible to our senses, that the spiritual gifts are so important. Because you see, God will engage you, God is engaging you, and he's going to do it through one another. And ultimately, therefore, the purpose of the gifts, as alluded to here in verse 3, is that we would be brought into greater and greater access to the person of Christ, where his lordship would loom larger and larger for us, where we would hear confessed by the actions and the words of other people, Jesus really is Lord. Cancer is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Unemployment is not Lord. Your company is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Those people who don't like you, that club who won't admit you, they aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you need to hear that truth hammered at your heart time and again because you have a hard time believing it, friends. I mean, really believing it in here. 
And the fact is, it's, it's Christ ministering himself through another person that he makes that truth seem more and more real to you. And that's what gifts are about. The Spirit is enabling those he's gifted to proclaim to the rest of us in word and deed, Jesus is Lord. Now what this also implies for us is this, that the test of all true spiritual gifts is this. Do they lead people into a greater and deeper knowledge of Christ? Do they lead people into a greater and deeper repentance in light of Christ? Do they lead us all into a greater confidence in him, into a greater hope and faith in him, into a greater love of him? That's the fruit of a spiritual gift in action. J.I. Packer, I think, gives us probably what for me is the best definition I've seen of repentance, and I wish to read it to you. He writes, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And when you hear that definition, you go, there's plenty of room for growth, right? For an expanded repentance. The more I know of my sin, the more I'm able to repent. The more I know of myself, the more I'm able to give myself to the Lord. And the more I know of Him, the more I'm able to give myself fully, increasingly to Him. And dear friends, spiritual gifts are exercised in the body of Christ so as to enable all of us to repent with greater and greater depth and purpose and meaning. Now, I wish to say here, to point out, if that is the test of a spiritual gift, it leads us all to say, Jesus is Lord, with greater meaning, with greater depth of understanding, with greater conviction. If that's the evidence that a spiritual gift is at work, I wish to point out for you at least one test which is not evidence of a spiritual gift, or not necessarily evidence of a spiritual gift, and that is whether or not a spectacular display happens. Because it is far too easy for us to think, especially in our day and age, well, if something miraculous happens, surely that is of God. Surely that is of the Holy Spirit. And I want to suggest to you, it is not. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 12 for a minute, and I wish you to, want you to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. It's way to the left. And turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. God gives an interesting warning here about false prophets. And I think it's very germane for us today. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and listen to this, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken 
takes place. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. You see what he's speaking of here is that there are false prophets, false workers of miracles, and they may announce to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and you know what? It may happen. You may see a spectacular event happen. But note what he says. Even then, if that prophet is not leading you into a deeper understanding of the Lordship of Christ as laid out for us in Scripture, then dear friends, no matter how miraculous, no matter how spectacular, it's not of the Holy Spirit. And all too often, we, we're looking for the spectacular. The thrill seekers of the church and all the rest are looking for the spectacular stuff. And I want to suggest to you, God may move in spectacular ways, but spectacular events are not necessarily evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is evidence is the people of God being able to say with increasing knowledge, with increasing conviction, with increasing repentance, Jesus is Lord. And so we are all in profound need of these gifts that all of us might increasingly be able to say, Jesus is Lord. If you're a Christian, you've already said that. But dear friends, the whole process of Christian maturity is being able to mean that more and more. And it's the gifts of the Spirit given among the body that enable us and equip us and edify us in such a way as we're able. And so I give you this definition of spiritual gift. And we'll unpack this in future weeks. But arising, at least in part, out of this text, that it is a talent, a skill, or ability which the Holy Spirit actively uses in a person to help other Christians experience a deeper relationship with Christ. It's a talent, it's a gift, it's ability which the Holy Spirit actively uses in a person to help other Christians experience a deeper relationship with Christ. Well, if spiritual gifts are what we need to grow our vulnerable, impressionable, faith. The great truth proclaimed in verses 4 to 6 is that God himself has provided the very gifts we need. And marvelously we see in these verses in the most modest and almost unassuming and subtle way possible, Paul the Apostle tells us the whole triune God is behind the giving of gifts. Look, look at these verses again. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, God the Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's referring to God the Son here. And then in verse 6 of chapter 12, there are different kinds of working, but the same God, that is God the Father. Dear friends, 
God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, all moving so that we might be recipients of the great gifts, the great bounty, the inheritance of God. And not only is the triune God behind our being gifted, according to the apostle, but the triune God is employing a diversity of gifts and a diversity of ministries and a diversity of blessing upon those ministries in order to grow your faith. And so the same Spirit grants a diversity of gifts, and we'll unpack some of those in the coming weeks. And interestingly, he says the Lord Jesus grants a diversity of ministries. You may have the gift of teaching, but that might be teaching like Billy Graham, and that might be teaching of a Sunday school class. Same gift, different ministry. The Holy Spirit is granting a diversity of ministries. He doesn't want everyone to be Billy Graham. He wants some to be Sunday school teachers. He wants some to be preachers. He wants some to be choir members. He wants some to be singing and teaching Bible studies, doing evangelistic Bible studies at work, doing evangelistic Bible studies at home. There are a gazillion ways for the gift of teaching to be used. And the Lord Jesus Christ oversees it all. And the Father, by effecting it at different levels, suggests some ministries, again, like Billy Graham's, will know an incredible prosperity and power. Some of the rest of us will know more meager, it seems, more meager displays of effectiveness. That's up to God, not us. And the bottom line is this, that Christ is ministered to us and through us in a very diverse set of ways. He is far too vast. He is far too glorious. He is far too huge in order to be conveyed to you by one little channel. If the only Jesus you know is the Jesus as presented by Sandy Wilson, you have a puny Jesus. There's only so much of Jesus you're going to be able to learn from a sanguine salesman of steel. You know, it's kind of fun to poke at the pastor while he's away sometimes. <laughs> the fact is, if the only Jesus you know is through any one individual, you have a small Jesus. Because he is far too big to be seen only in one man. He's far too big to be seen only in one congregation. And that's why the gifts of the Spirit are there, that we might experience Jesus coming at us from all directions and coming to us and engaging us at every level. He's going to engage your mind. And so you engage those who have great gifts of knowledge and wisdom. He's going to engage your heart and your emotions. He's going to engage your will. He's going to engage you at every level. He will engage you with a casserole on your doorstep when you most need it. That's a gift. It's Jesus coming to you to minister to you through another individual. We had the sacrament of baptism this morning. He comes to us in the sacraments. Though he himself is unseen and unfelt and unheard, yet in the sacrament we find water, the washing of Jesus Christ. We can hear the water. We can feel the water. We can see the water. All of that, Jesus coming to you to engage your senses. Or we have the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Or Jesus engages you with bread and with wine. Why is that? So that you can taste the gospel that it's not just all up here, but that your taste buds 
access, as it were, God himself by means of the Holy Spirit. And so it is. We taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, God is coming at you in all these different ways. Christ, who is invisible and inaccessible to your senses, becomes he who engages you at every level through all truth, through all goodness, all beauty. It's all Jesus coming at you. And so he comes at you by words, and he comes at you by deeds. He just keeps coming at you. Praise God that your faith and mine might grow. And so, dear friends, as we study these gifts in these following weeks, we haven't embarked on a theological excursion here, but rather we're dealing with a matter of profound personal importance for you and for me, because the issue on the table is this. How does Christ Jesus minister to us? And the answer, according to the Apostle Paul, is he ministers himself to each of us, through each of us. And the spiritual gifts are profoundly important because I ask you, how much of Jesus do you want to know? How much of Jesus do you want to experience? And if you render spiritual gifts unimportant, you've rendered Jesus unimportant because he comes to you through the mutual ministry of one to another. And marvelously, he has given us his Holy Spirit, whereby he reveals himself in all of these different ways so that our understanding of Jesus is far more vast and far more glorious than it was in the beginning. And dear friends, all too much emphasis in the church in the last millennium has been on the minister as being the one who administers Jesus Christ. And we who are of the Reformed heritage have a great doctrine. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And spiritual gifts is crucially important to you being a priest, one to another. What do I mean by priest? That means one who mediates Jesus Christ to your friends, to your loved ones, to your family. Your children are priests to you, and they will instruct you, dear friends, won't they, about Jesus in the most unusual of ways. Priests of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to you, and you yourself being his priest. Oh, might we embrace, might we study this and dig ourselves into it. Study the gifts, study ourselves in order to offer ourselves as conduits of the great Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we all are impressionable. We all are easily rocked. We all, like sheep, tend to go astray, each to his own way especially at the first whiff of trouble. We thank you, therefore, for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For though we are faithless, you remain faithful. And though we suddenly are quick to doubt, we thank you that you minister yourself to us through human beings, through flesh and blood, through people that we really truly can engage And so we thank you, Lord, for these gifts. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your commitment to them, that we might all the more confess the lordship of Jesus. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to know our gifts and to exercise them in love greatly in our own church, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace, in our community, in this world, that the light of Jesus Christ might be seen in our face, that the world would see his eyes and his mouth and and his nose and his ears and his feet and his hands by seeing us. Gracious Lord, may this be a great truth, that the world might be brought to this great Savior. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.